A long wait for justice, the murder of Lubitsa Topic, was an episode of the 519 podcast released on December 9th, 2022. At that point, Lubitsa Topic's murderer had not been identified by police in Windsor. That changed on February 8th, 2023, when police confirmed the identity of the killer was a man by the name of Frank Arthur Hall. DNA evidence helped establish Hall as the murderer. In May of 1971, when Topic was killed, Hall was living less than two kilometers from her family's home. Hall has since died. What you're about to hear is the version of the 519 podcast that was released before Hall had been publicly identified. Stories from your community. This is the 519 podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. In November... 2022, the Windsor Police Service's Major Crimes Unit was recognized for solving a 48-year-old cold case murder. The case was the gruesome killing of six-year-old Lubitsa Topic, which stumped investigators at the time. It led to a hectic investigation that unfortunately did not turn up many promising leads. As time passed, it became what's known as a cold case that would haunt investigators for decades. That is, until the case was reopened in 2016. 519 Podcast presents A Long Wait for Justice, The Murder of Lubitsa Topic. Your host is Haley Chegg. So in 1971, um, it was May 14th of 1971, Lubitsa was playing outside with her brother. And um, sounds like, by all accounts, uh, by all accounts, I mean, essentially one witness, and that was her, her older brother, Michael. Somebody came along and, and lured her away with the promise of some money. And uh, she was last seen walking towards Seminole on Drulard Road. Um, officers are there probably within, it's hard to figure out an exact timeline, uh, depending on when he actually came in to tell his mom that uh, Lubitsa was missing, but within an hour, officers are on scene and eventually very large scale search involving numerous officers, auxiliary officers and members of the public trying to locate her. Uh, and unfortunately, during the course of that evening, about four hours later, um, they discovered her body and uh, that transitioned into uh, from an abduction case into uh, obviously a homicide case at that point. That's Scott Chapman, staff sergeant in charge of the Windsor Police Criminal Intelligence Unit. He was the lead investigator on the Lubitsa Topic case. Lubitsa was six at the time, playing outside her family home at 1290 Drulard Road. She was the second of two children alongside her brother Michael, who was eight years old. It had been five years since the family moved to Windsor from Yugoslavia, and they had happily settled into their new home, making friends all around the neighborhood. Her father Luca was working the afternoon of the 14th. Her mother Paula was at home at the time. The last time Paula Topic saw her daughter was when she innocently ran into the house asking for candy, as six-year-olds do. Shortly after, she was approached by a thin-faced man with a slender build, blonde hair and perhaps close to six feet tall, as described by her brother, the only witness. He offered her $8 to help with a job, eventually luring her away from her family home. She was never seen alive again. The entire community helped search for her as she was well-liked around the block. Eventually, a police officer found Lubitsa's body at 1690 Hickory Avenue near a gate to a back alley that no longer exists today. Lubitsa was found covered in blood, with her teeth smashed and leg broken. It was a violent assault on a little girl that still had a lot of life to live. An investigation immediately began. When the murder took place in the 70s, police work was done very differently. 
There weren't any video cameras, DNA testings, or any other new technologies to assist officers in solving a case. So over the years, there's been a number of people that were put forward as suspects. And so policing's changed a lot since the 1970s. And, and I just, I'll speak on that for a moment. Uh, if you're investigating a murder currently, uh, two of the biggest things that we look at forensically are uh, DNA and you know, and video canvases, like there's a lot of video services in this city, right? So those are the things that, that assist investigations now. But in the 1970s, you're limited in forensics to fingerprints, hair analysis, things of that nature, and there's no video anywhere, right? So um, how do you take steps to rule individuals out in the 1970s? And it's what you'd call old fashioned police work, right? Interviewing people, determine whether they could have been in the area or, or not. Um, so over the years, a number of suspects were put forward and realistically, like we couldn't really eliminate them completely until we were able to start comparing the DNA on this case. So over 700 names were provided to uh, the Windsor Police Service over the course of the 50 years um, as potential individuals who had some involvement. So when you get that type of a list, you have to take steps as an investigator to start paring it down and eliminating people, uh, which is a daunting task. Again, considering the number of, of persons of interest and, and the, uh, the age of that case are, are big obstacles there. Not only was narrowing down the list of suspects a daunting task, but police officers in the 70s also faced a lot of different challenges. At the time, they were usually bogged down with cases of domestic violence, not child abductions and sexually motivated murders. And to bring it to today's age, these types of crimes have been studied, reviewed, and seen all over the world. Investigating a sexually motivated homicide wasn't the problem for the modern Windsor Police Services. Their big challenge was the 48 years that has passed since the crime occurred. When you're, you're tracking down and investigating a case that size or that age, um, you know, individuals who were kind of part of that event, um, they have either aged significantly or they passed away. Uh, even like the infrastructure of the city has changed. So when you're looking at descriptions of uh, streets and locations, sometimes there's references made to businesses that haven't existed in 35 plus years. So uh, even as so those challenges can even hit you as just trying to grasp the lay of the land of where this occurred uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, fortunately, there was the positives to this is, is that because of how important this case was, it was very well attended to by uh, by Windsor police officers and, and other employees over the last several decades. Uh, so we were able to uh, move forward, especially from a forensic point of view. Modern advancements in forensic technologies have been a godsend to investigators taking on cold cases. The possibilities they have brought on are limitless. One of the new tools that police have been using is called investigative genetic genealogy, where offenders can be matched through online ancestry sites. This is Michael Arnfield, criminologist and author of How to Solve a Cold Case. You don't need a, 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 a large blood stain on, a, on an item of clothing you can have again. Uh, I had a case solved off the backing of an earring that came off, uh, and there was enough DNA on that to link to an offender. Um, you know, there's there's a case, several cases I can think of where, again, something is just handled by a, an offender, uh, and there's enough uh, sweat and, and skin cells that come off uh, that by today's standards, if that's been properly preserved and there's a proper chain of custody for that item, can be put into to the databank. Um, what these private labs are doing is... Um, 
again, I've just heard anecdotal accounts and they're all U.S. cases, but we're not just talking like handling a a knife that's going to, you're going to secrete a lot of blood and skin cells. Uh, we're talking like, um, like brushed up against something and there's still decades later enough skin cells, micrograms of DNA that they can recover from that, which means moving forward, every item at a crime scene has potential DNA. What happens basically is even if you don't have DNA, they can recover micrograms of DNA that even just a few years ago, you could never get off a piece of clothing. Anything even just touched briefly by a suspect can now yield a DNA sample. If the offender's sample to match to the DNA recovered from clothing or a crime scene or a weapon uh, isn't in the databank, so no match can be made, what they then do is they take uh, that same DNA profile and they apply it to this uh, hundreds of thousands, actually they're up to millions now of, of samples that they've recovered from various genealogical websites. And they'll find, say, a 10% match of the crime scene sample to um a blood relative of the offender, and then they just start working the family trees through there. This method has led to major recent cases being closed, including the Golden State Killer in California and Christine Jessop case in Queensville, Ontario. I would not be surprised if the new retention rate for evidence and notes is, is 70, 80 years, because we're seeing uh, a lot of these cases get cleared posthumously to offenders, Calvin Hoover being one of them. Uh, who are who are deceased because they're being solved uh, decades later through these these rapid advances in what we call IgG or investigative genetic genealogy, where offenders are being matched through their family tree. So long after they're dead, uh, their descendants are in various genealogical databases, and they can be they can be essentially be tracked that way. I think we're seeing kind of new life and interest in 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 diving into these cases because uh, cold cases are often cold and unsolved for a long time because they're, they're difficult cases. Um, that's, that's why they remain unsolved. So to have this new tool that, you know, um, five, six years ago, we couldn't even imagine having. Now uh, we see the value in it. And I think it's encouraging officers to dig back in and reevaluate cases that uh, uh, may have sat on a shelf for a while because it they, they just were deemed to be too difficult and, and uh, all avenues had been spent. While canvassing the crime scene on the original investigation, one of Lubitsa's teeth was found. It was presumed to have fallen out in the course of self-defense or during the vicious assault. Also found at the crime scene was a separate tooth. This information was not released to the public at the time, but was held on as holdback evidence. When this crime happened, no one was probably thinking DNA, but uh, a missing tooth uh, I mean, that's that's something that, yeah, if you had a person of interest, and, and that's really why it's incredible that it went that it went cold. I mean, in a relatively small community, you got somebody who spontaneously is missing a tooth uh, and whose whereabouts are, are perhaps suspect, uh, and nobody phones this into police, or this person doesn't come to the attention of the police. Uh, that information would have been held back at the time because that's the equivalent of. Uh, again, a calling card being left at the scene. And you're not going to, uh, well, there's two ways of thinking about that. Had they released that, they may have caught the guy because someone may have had an eye out for someone missing a tooth, again, who couldn't account for their whereabouts or who came home in the middle of the night and without an explanation. That may have been helpful. You'd also be deluged with probably hundreds of calls uh, citing everybody with bad dental work. So um, it would have meant a lot more 
uh, interviewing, but they may have caught them. And, and, and that's always the issue with holdback evidence is, you know, how much do we provide to uh, ignite public interest and, and start getting some tips uh, versus uh, what do we hold back to make sure we're not overwhelmed with false confessions or, or misleading tips uh, or, 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 you know, compromising the investigation. We see examples of good and bad. I can think of a couple of police departments in Ontario um, who just have a policy of everything is holdback evidence. Uh, and it's no surprise that they have a disproportionate number of uh, unsolved, unclear cases. Modern scientists were able to extract DNA from the tooth, which is a testament to the original 1970s police force and how they maintained the evidence. Using this DNA, they were able to match it to other DNA found at the crime scene and trace them through ancestral family trees using investigative genetic genealogy technology, eventually finding the murderer. Unfortunately, the killer passed away before he was identified, meaning he will never have to face punishment for his crime. His day in court will never come. He was an individual that was living in Windsor. Um, yes, I, I know exactly where he was living at the time. Um, he was into his early 20s, and yeah, he was known to police prior and afterwards as well. Um, the interesting thing with this individual is that, you know, in, in close to 50 years, this person's name was never brought up once. And the only reason we were able to identify this person was through the use of uh, investigative genetic genealogy. Um, so no one had ever suggested this person as uh, having a level of involvement in this case. However, that's all the public knows about the perpetrator. The police are currently not allowed to reveal his name, and here's why. That goes to um, freedom of information laws in Ontario, and I believe there's actually an additional bylaw in Windsor that kind of reflects the, uh, the same laws, where an individual's name can't be released to the public unless, uh, one, they're charged before the court, or two, it furthers an investigation. And uh, our administration in 2019 evaluated this and determined that they were not able to release that information based on freedom of information laws. The fact that the Windsor police haven't released the name has been heavily criticized by the public following the case. There are a lot of good reasons as to why the name should be known. One has the question, why it isn't? Whenever something strange, idiosyncratic like this happens, uh, where there's a departure from the norm in terms of press conferences or announcing the closing of a case, you have to ask who benefits. One wonders what further investigative steps behind the scenes may have been taken stateside? Uh, is this individual linked to an ongoing investigation in the in the U.S.? The person is deceased, uh, but is there a forthcoming announcement whereby, and maybe it's not the Windsor Police's uh, press conference to make, maybe topic is one of several victims and another police service uh, is going to to take credit for essentially figuring all this out. And it's just a matter of the Windsor police having cleared that case because it's in their jurisdiction, but it's sort of it's not their announcement to make. Uh, that's pure uh, speculation, mm -hmm. but that would be ultimately the best outcome um, in terms of uh, a benign explanation for withholding the name. Lubitsa's killer was in his early 20s at the time of the murder, which is an alarming age to have committed this crime. Not releasing the identity of the killer to the public could have a major effect on other potentially linked cases. This was likely his first homicide if he continued to offend. Um, this would be a very significant, in terms of uh, a serial offender's criminal career, first homicide, whereby you have a uh, a low-risk victim, so, I mean, a, a child in a stable home who is is not particularly at risk, uh, 
who is uh, targeted uh, and then um, and then murdered in what we have to presume is a, is, a, is a sexual homicide. Sexual predators do not stop, and the, the research on this is clear. They don't age out of that type of offending where other types of, again, um, prolific offenders uh, often uh, with time, again, that their interest in doing this stuff recedes. Uh, we know that child sexual offenders, and particularly child sexual murderers, do not stop. Um, and, and this is why, again, there's, there's offenders who uh, remain in custody well into their old ages because the, the parole board understands that uh, they're still at risk to, to reoffend. The fact that the name isn't released is additionally concerning for that reason. This is young in terms of a criminal career. Uh, and this is precisely why Toronto Police did the opposite. And when they cleared through familial DNA, the case of Christine Jessup, they released Calvin Hoover's not only his name, but his mugshot, knowing full well uh, that he would have traveled around uh, the region at the time, Durham region, uh, as well as throughout Ontario and perhaps elsewhere. And that if people didn't recognize the name, they may recognize the photograph. The likelihood of Lubitsa's killer becoming a serial offender was taken into consideration by the Windsor Police Department. They ultimately did help other police services by providing them with the killer's identity while keeping it hidden from the public. Well, we certainly looked at uh, the cases we have here in Windsor and nothing seemed to line up. Um, I, his, this person's identity has absolutely been shared with uh, law enforcement across the country. Uh, I were able to tell some of the areas that he, he was after Windsor and, and uh, his, his name has gone out to other agencies. And uh, my understanding is they've looked into him uh, for potential involvement in other uh, other potential crimes, but I'm not aware of the status of those investigations. The problem with only sharing this information with other police departments in Canada and not to the public is that 95% of cold case homicides that are closed are a result of public engagement. This is according to Michael Arnfield. Keeping the information private eliminates a huge potential resource. Although the information has been shared across the country, Windsor is a border city, which means the murder could have international implications. Investigators and, and the scientists understand that during this period, uh, especially it was very easy to just slip over the border whether for work or travel or just to make yourself disappear. So, uh, again, this is pre all of the security protocols we have now. Somebody may have gotten over and it's never even been documented or vice versa. So um, all of Southwestern Ontario, that is that is fair game. And I mean, in London alone, the number of, of, of sexual homicides that have offender DNA on file that have never been matched um, suggests a handful of explanations. But, but one is that they never ended up in Canadian CODIS because they didn't stick around long enough to get arrested on the side of the border for anything else that would have required that DNA sample be taken post-1998. Uh, Regardless of how the case has been handled or how the killer's name has been held private, the important thing is that Lubitsa's murderer has finally been identified and her family has been given the answers they've been waiting for for 48 years. When I was on the way to see them, uh, almost anxiety and excitement and nervousness, and uh, it was it was quite a moment um, to be able to go up there and say, you know, we've identified the person responsible and let them know who that person was, uh, which in itself was a relief to the family. I think to to know it was a person that, that was not known to them. I mean, again, probably the most rewarding moment of my career to to be able to go and speak with them. Um, again incredibly emotional when it comes to homicide uh, obviously you have the victim who whose uh, life was uh, ended 
too early, but they all have family uh, that are essentially living victims that are dealing with this trauma and to never have that uh, that answer. And I don't like using the word closure because I don't know that there's ever closure with something like this, but uh, certainly they're important answers that I think people want uh, to know what happened to their loved ones. The relief was felt by others outside the family as well. After we announced that we had solved it, I could tell you that with within an hour, um, I had a retired sergeant who was in his 90s showed up at, at headquarters to, to speak to us. And Al Proctor, within a couple of weeks of that, uh, he had called it and uh, just wanted to express thanks to uh, us for continuing it because it, it meant a lot to the officers who, who worked it. It was, uh, it really affected a lot of lives, this case. When I, I got the phone call from CFS, I, I, um, even thinking about that phone call, it still triggers emotion for me. I uh, poured my heart and soul into this case for five years. Uh, my partner, Terry, um, Terry Dodich and Scott Robinson uh, were two individuals that worked uh, a lot on the, the, the actual building, the family trees. Um, you know, Terry devo himself devoted a tremendous amount of time to this case. So it really took, um, it, 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 was a, it was an emotional moment and um, it's something I think I'll never forget. It's probably the best thing that I'll, I'll ever do in my career. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, the entire week became like an emotional roller coaster at that point. You see posters of missing children, missing men, women, and reward posters all over Ontario. We see these reminders daily of how rare it is to solve a case that has gone cold for so long. The Windsor Police Department accomplished something remarkable. And with the advancements in forensic technology, hopefully there will be more answers to come. And more families will be given at least a small measure of peace, knowing that police were able to uncover the identities of those that harmed their loved ones. I'm very proud of the work that uh, that we did on this. I'm very proud of the work that the Windsor Police Service did over the years on this, and able to uh, maintain the integrity of this case for so long. And uh, it allowed us to finally uh, to close what I, I think is probably the most significant murder case in the history of the city here. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written and produced by Patrick Magum. It was hosted by Haley Chan. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.